welcome to the Theology Podcast, and we are back, back in a pub-like environment, and we've got, uh, you know, people talking in the background. We've got some some friends with us today, and uh, it's it's going to be a great show. Uh, and today's is Tom's day. But before we even get to that, let me introduce myself. I am C. R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I've been a college professor, a home improvement contractor, a real estate investor and an agent specializing in small investment properties. And that's kind of scratching the surface a little bit. Anyways, I've done some stuff. And I've also written a few books. And I'm working on a book on Tom Bombadil right now, and I'm hopefully going to finish that up in a few weeks. But anyway, enough about me. So, uh, Glenn, Glenn, tell us a little bit about yourself and some of the doings. I know a lot of people are anxiously or eagerly, I should say, eagerly is, I think, the better word, awaiting something that is coming forth from thee. Yes, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of early modern European history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And my latest book is going to be coming out on Election Day. All right. <laughs> it's called Slaying Leviathan. It's about uh, Protestant resistance theory and natural rights and limited government and a whole host of other things that ended up uh, being really important at the founding of America. Good stuff, good stuff. Now, I'm going to mention that you're, you're going to be speaking at New St. Andrews College uh, like a few days before that. Right, yeah. I'll be at New St. Andrews for their Reformation Day festivities on Friday, October 30th. Yeah, we don't know any, any of the details at the moment, so we can't help people out. But but if you're out in the, uh, in the Idaho area, if you're around uh, Moscow and you're looking to be a part of something that I think will be uh, really enriching... Uh, we'll, uh, you know, send out Glenn. And Glenn will be there, and, and I'm sure that they'll be able to fill you in on the, the times and the things that he'll be doing anyway. But uh, Tom, Tom, why don't we turn to you? We know that you've got something to share, something that's going on with the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, but also it's your day. So maybe you can just introduce yourself, say what you got with the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, and then tell us about what we're talking about. Okay. It's a lot, a lot on my plate. <laughs> I'm Tom Price, systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, uh, teaching both at uh, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and other places. And um, yes, I have a class that is being offered through the fighting, laughing, feasting fellows. <laughs> um, the idea, uh, I think the working title is Theology of Culture and Theology and Culture. Um, it originally was Theology and Culture. Um, but they kind of shifted it, and I kind of like the play off of those two. Actually, today I was going to be discussing at some point uh, something very similar, a theology and the humanities, theology of the humanities. Hmm. Um, so there is uh, an important point in that. But the class is basically going to be an introduction to the fundamentals of theological analysis, hmm. um, sort of what we're doing on this show, where we take um, a theological vision, we build up the core elements of that, what's, what's involved in a full picture Christianity about who God is, the nature of reality, the nature of the human being, the creaturely life, social life, political life. Mm-hmm. And then we look at the ways in which there are current um, competing ideas and practices that come up and the way in which these encroach upon um, all the institutions, especially in the West, but in the world for that matter, um, that uh, eventually find their way into the church. And so how does the church um, grapple with these, drawing off of its own 
riches from its theological um, vision rather than looking for just an alternative, uh, right. you know, right. well, non-Christian perspective. Yeah, that sounds great because I, one of the great challenges that, that any pastor faces, at least a pastor who actually has some kind of ability to to think about these these themes and thoughts. Oh, we got some beers arriving. All right. Thank you very much. So that is the, uh, is that the evil monkey? Uh, evil genius. Evil genius. <laughs> evil genius, purple monkey. Evil genius. Dishwasher porter. I'm going to have that next. <laughs> anyway, so I, I had to let you know out there in podcast land exactly what Glenn was having today. Yep. Uh, Tom, I have to admit, when you said, uh, how does the church deal with these things, the first thing that came to mind was very badly. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's very true. And that may be exactly, that kind of will walk us into, uh, <laughs> into yeah. that. But before that, when you had, uh, he ordered an evil genius, uh, Descartes came to mind for oh, some yeah, reason. Oh, right, yeah, right, 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 right. And then all I'm thinking about now is how to make sure that everything going on right now is not really caused by the evil genius that is <laughs> yeah, how do we know that this reality that we live in is not the dream of some evil genius so when they ask me for another beer I should not say I think not <laughs> so maybe, maybe frame it a different way <laughs> anyway uh, so uh, there's, there's that, that class and I, and I think that's um, something really uh, important and we need it so that's one thing but what are we talking about today um, well, today I'm looking at sort of a question that um, sort of has landed on the lap of the church. Uh, it's landed on the lap for a long time, as we'll, we'll see, but it's really starting to become often a make-or-break kind of, uh, well, what, what answer you take is, is sort of make-or-break. And I think a lot of times the church's answers has, have been to end up breaking rather yeah, break, than making. Yeah, break, break, right, right. And, um, but it's sort of... It, what, what we've noticed is, as the, the Christian theological vision has not only been thrown out of the picture in just about every institution in the West, right. um, it increasingly is now being thrown out of the, the church. church. Yeah, yeah. And so church sort of was trying to carry sometimes part of the last vestiges of that culture that was lifted out of its paganism up into a fuller light of Christianity and gave us a lot of the riches that we have um, and that we draw upon in learning and developing mm. social life, political life, and, right. and, and really for flourishing. But also, it was the, the kind of an ancillary set of, of wisdom that uh, helped the church carry out its mission of, of understanding everything in light of the scripture. And so what do I mean by this is sort of that whole tradition of, of the humanities, if you will, mm -hmm. um, that, that has now sort of... I'm going to have an evil genius will be my next one. <laughs> <laughs> and so what we, what we sort of have is, and I'll, I'll kind of explain it fuller, is, is something uh, Chuck Colson years ago, some three generations ago, called sort of uh, the present dark ages that we're entering. Now, and, not Chuck Colson or... You, or were you thinking about the Charles? Yeah, the Charles Coulson, Chuck okay. Coulson. Okay, guys, because we have been talking about McIntyre earlier. Okay. Oh, McIntyre is going to be a part of this too. Okay. But, okay. Uh, but yep. uh, actually, by the way, since you're getting an evil genius too, should we start calling ourselves a cabal? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Some people already do. <laughs> Good point. 
Well, the, well there, was a, there was a work by Charles Coulson, uh, Against the Night, uh, Living in the New Dark Ages, put out um, some years ago, and it almost uh, mimicked some of the things that actually Alistair McIntyre, or they paralleled each I other. I see you've got the in, Holy Grail there. Uh, after Virtue, especially the last <laughs> chapter right, of that. Right, right. Um, and, and the way he puts it um, in, in, his, in this book is that there's a growing sense of storm clouds gathering on the horizon. Now, he was ringing this bell again 30 40, a long time ago, and he's not the first. I mean, you had Francis Schaeffer, you have... Sure. It, it goes back to, you know, the prophets for that matter. But, right, right. but um, and there's a crisis in the, in, in the character of our culture, and this is how he puts it. Um, the current crisis in Western culture presents the greatest threat to civilization since the barbarians invaded Rome. The time smell of sunset, he says. Um, the encroaching darkness um, that casts its long shadow across every institution of our land. Um, but he says, worse yet, um, there are new barbarians. Um, and these new barbarians have basically um, spread out into impacting our families, the classrooms, legislatures, courts, films, studio, um, and now even our churches. He's saying this, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so he basically said, these new barbarians who now have no higher law than self-interest, who mm -hmm. see... Okay, we got some food arriving. So is that the... Uh, is that, is that, I think that's for me. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay, go for it, Tom. Okay, so these new barbarians who know no higher law than self-interest, who see nothing to champion beyond their individualism, celebrating their own nihilism, and, in effect, torching the very props of culture. We live in a new dark age. Having elevated the individual as the m measure of all things, modern men and women are guided solely by their dark passions. Now, I think, interestingly, and we'll see, McIntyre's gonna pick up this picture, but um, I can, this can kind of be um, filled out a little more by an article I think Dave Bentley Hart wrote um, for First Things back when he was writing Good Things. <laughs> um, it was called Christ and Nothing or Nothing. Thank you. Yeah. So my evil genius has arrived. <laughs> and so, uh, so Christ or Nothing. Um, and it was kind of almost a play off of what McIntyre has in there, um, Nietzsche or Aristotle. <laughs> um, but what he was, his, his introduction could very much um, fill out what Coulson was saying. He, says, as he puts it as, as modern um, men and women, to the, decree, to the degree that we are modern, we believe in nothing. We hold an unshakable, if often unconscious, faith in the nothing or nothingness as such. It is this which we place our trust, upon which we venture our souls, and on which we project our values, by which we measure the meaning and the fullness of our lives. Our religion is one of comfortable nihilism. But it's, it's worth drawing this out yeah, a little right. bit. He goes, we live in an age in which the chief moral value has been determined by overwhelming consensus to be the absolute liberty of personal volition. And this is sort of what calls right. this radical right. individualism. Right. The power of each of us to choose what he or she believes, wants, needs, or must possess. Um, our culturally most pervasive models on human freedom are unambiguously voluntarist. And in, in a rather debased and degrading way, they're Promethean. The will, we believe, is sovereign because it has no premise. It's free because it's spontaneous. It is its own highest good. And this is what he means, is there's nothing that gives it form or direction. 
And so, and as a society that believes this, um, must at least implicitly embrace and advocate a particular kind of moral metaphysics. One, the unreality of any higher reality than choice, or two, the unreality of any transcendent good or God ordering desire towards higher ends, and three, desire is free to propose, seize, accept, reject, want or not want, but not obey. And this is similar to what I think Coulson meant by the dark passions. Now, I want to stop here and think a little bit about this because within the evangelical world generally, I recognize all of this stuff, but it goes in, it's sort of dressed up in Christian language. Mm-hmm. So people, people uh, have a tendency to uh, sort of, because they've been, say, raised in a, in a Christian home or they're part of a denomination that... They, don't, they, don't, they, they like in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. maybe because grandma and grandpa were, you know, members of this church and, and they went to the, the college that the church, you know, the denomination sponsors and they've got lots of friends, you know, <laughs> really strong and social networks and stuff. But, but in terms of how these people understand themselves, mm-hmm. not just uh, in, in terms of the relationship to that denomination, but in terms of how they relate to sort of the larger world and reality itself, per se, they're, they're what we t- we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah. And some of these people have huge <clears throat> Twitter followings, um, have a lot of cachet. They're speaking in our, in our Christian colleges and in chapel, mm. you know. And, and unless you have a really well-developed sort of BS meter... Mm-hmm. You know what I'm getting at? You you miss it. You th- you think because of the enthusiasm and the warmth and all of the lingo, yeah, that everything's a okay. And it's interesting because David uh, Hart mentioned that said at least with the early Christians, the gods that they had to to go to war with um, were usually tangible. You you saw their practices. You saw you you, you were confronted with them. The hard part about nihilism and choice is they're so familiar to us, even especially in our fallen state, that you can't really put your finger on them, but yet they're everywhere. So yes, it does take radical discipleship <laughs> um, to, to see all the ways in which we're invested in this and this is invested in, in us. I'm, I'm struck by, due to some things in the news lately, the degree to which this ends up shaping language, hmm. um, that um, language and with it, you know, just sort of the way that we conceive of the world. You know, you are, you know, you are not what you are biologically, you are what you conceive of yourself, and we have to use the language that you choose for yourself, because otherwise this is somehow a violation. Um, uh, Again, it, it's sort of a, a radical, solipsistic way of looking at the world that means that it is my moral responsibility in our world today to acknowledge as if real your delusions. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, th- well, that's it. There is, and I think that's, um, I mean, David Hart was perceptive here where he said that this has become a moral metaphysics. To the point that there, the, the the reality which is accepted is basically 
you as a, your, your choice and through your choice, you are basically creating reality ex nihilo for yourself and everyone else. And somehow everyone else has to both juggle the reality you're creating and yet be an agent in some way of their own creating. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, and this is where we run into, I think, so, I mean, this is like you say, the, the demise of the, the kind of institutions that have brought us something very different. And I, I think this is kind of what the warning was, this growing sense that uh, Coulson was seeing that Hart is noticing, and uh, we'll get to McIntyre, but McIntyre was, you know, no- noticing it as well. And there wasn't a, it was a point of no return. Yeah. One of the things that maybe you're going to get there, but as a pastor I deal with, is uh, there's a sense in which many of the parishioners that I've known over the years want to narrow the range of thinking down mm. to the spirit and its future in the next world. And they don't understand or have very little appreciation for how even that will be taken from them Hmm. if they don't have a broader vision. Hmm. So what I'm getting at is this. Um, It's my conviction, the conviction has grown over the years, that either the work of the church is making it the culture that surrounds it progressively more Christian... Hmm. Or the reverse is happening, Hmm. that the culture surrounding the church is making the church progressively or regressively less Christian. Hmm. There's no third option. And that, yeah, and that's sort of the question here is, you know, are are there possibilities within that set of circumstances? But it's interesting, David Hart mentioned this because it plays into what you say when, when it works the way in which the culture... Um, and, 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 you know, what uh, Coulson would say, what secularity is basically um, finding its way into to the church and, and kind of leveling it from the inside or bringing, bringing its rot, if you will, yep. within and, and distorting each of these things like the family, the classroom, legislation, courts, film studios. Exactly. But he says this society, society that is built this way must be secured against any of the intrusions of the good or God so that its citizens may determine their own lives by the choices they make from a universe that is morally indifferent, but variably desirable ends unencumbered by any power or any grammar of obligation and value. Um, And he goes, thus the the liberties that permit one to purchase lavender (laughs) bedclothes to enjoy pornography or desiring one's own unborn child to be um, aborted, basically, are all considered equally intrinsically good because all are expressions of an inalienable freedom of choice. Right. And so I think he's capturing this one set of of, uh, well, uh, one of the big pictures or, or one of the big sets that, that this new barbarian invasion entails. Um, we know there's more to it now. Um, there is sort of a reaction to this hyper-individualism, but it takes a lot of the same assumptions from it right. um, and just takes it a different way. Now, of course, Nietzsche's uh, big, big emphasis was, you know, that, that driving all this was what should be central to, to everything, but was, was basically masked by everyone, and that is that there's it, the will to power um, is at the heart of everything. 
Um, and so this would be one of those kind of standpoints. Now, one of the things that Nietzsche was trying to do... Well, let, let's stop there a mm -hmm. second, if you don't mind, mm -hmm. because that's one of those things that I think people can hear, not fully sort of appreciate. Mm -hmm. So when I hear you say that, I, 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 I have a sense of what you mean, but that's because I've been reflecting on it for about 30 years. <laughs> for a lot of folks, it just kind of goes right by them. What does it mean... For the will to power to be the the most fundamental thing of all, that, maybe that's a way to put it. So that means that there's no reality apart from the will of some person. Yeah. Which means that there are winners and there are losers. There are people who get their way, and there are other people who have to go along. Mm -hmm. Now the whole critical theory stuff begins to make a whole lot more sense. Yeah. Well. And actually, to, we need to back up a little bit further. I want to go all the way back to this idea of radical freedom. Hmm. In the, this is stuff I talk about in the book. The, we, we've, we've talked a bit about this in the podcast, too, that the original concept of liberty basically pointed to, well, in, in, in Rome, liberty meant the freedom to act within the boundaries of divine and natural law and the law of the state. Right. Okay, so there were boundaries. You could act within those boundaries. When you add the church into that, there's an increasingly moral component to it, but you even get this in the ancient world because the natural end of man is mm -hmm. uh, eudaimonia, a, a right. good, fulfilled life, yep. a virtue, all of that kind of thing. Okay, so... What happens when you lose the concept of virtue? What happens when you are living in a universe that is apathetic and amoral? And that's what McIntyre was getting at in his you, title. You immediately lose all possibility of liberty. Right. Liberty disappears in an amoral universe. And Jesus implied that when he said the truth shall make you free. Mm -hmm. There's a connection. Right. Most Americans believe that that is a non sequitur. They think if the truth exists, they're not free. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I yeah. think you're right. But that's because they confuse liberty, which always operates within the boundaries of reality, natural law, divine right. law, and right. so on, uh, and license, which was the other alternative, right. which is freedom from all restraint. If you don't have a moral universe, you have no liberty. You can have no liberty, and all that's left is license. You get the kind of solipsistic world that we're talking about here, only people can't live that way, so they've either got to create one for themselves or find somebody to follow. Right. They can dress it up in different ways, use different terms. Mm -hmm. They can talk about the general will. They can talk about follow the science, as though science has some kind of capacity to guide us morally. <laughs> science, on its own terms, on its own terms... This is one of the ways we know that people don't understand what science does. <laughs> Some of the strongest advocates of science don't understand its limitations. Right. It doesn't make moral claims. It just says what, what the physical processes are. Yes. Yeah. This, this is what happens when you do this. Right. Yeah. Right. So when we, you know, let's talk about what we talk, what we're dealing with right now. There's no, there's no actual um, moral guidance that we can get from the epidemiologists when they stick to their job. It's the task of the public servant, 
the civil magistrate to say, thank you for that information. I'll think about what I need to do in light of that. But it's not uh, a kind of guidance. There are other things that the epidemiologist doesn't know that need to be taken into consideration as well. Right. And, and have you ever considered that the people who tell you we have to do all the following because it's human life is so valuable, you know, that we have to do the following even if it only saves one life are the same people who are pro-abortion? Yeah, there's, there are the inconsistencies. But there are the larger, I think, set of concerns that any civic leader needs to consider. Everything from the obvious question of what about the economy, people need to eat, to how do we determine whether or not we're past this? Is it when no one is dying of this? Is it when five people a day are dying of it? <laughs> is there any kind of, is there any? So you have to exercise some discretion. But then we get back to the question of, well, how do you inform the discretion? Yeah. Is yeah. there some kind of larger moral frame within which to do that? And I think all that that shows, I mean, the questions you raise and, and you're talking about show the moral ambiguity of what has been created by a picture similar to kind of this, uh, you know, onset of a crisis in, in Western culture, if you will. Because what you have is you have this very strange affirmation, like you said, these inconsistencies, these irrationalities, if you will, where the centralization of choice, there is no reality of that. Well, all of a sudden you have something, say maybe a pandemic of something um, that, that obviously sets a, a certain amount of limit to one's interpretive um, choices, <laughs> right? right? Um, okay, if this is really there and it's really impacting people, it's not whether you, you choose it or not, right? It, it might choose you without you knowing it. So all of a sudden you get this real strong, um, almost a crisis of its own that has entered into a picture where people are willing, therefore, to give up you know, it's just maybe this Hobbesian notion. They're willing up to give up something of their choice being the, you know, the, the, the final reality in order to have a certain safety. But yep. I think in the end, that, that kind of protective safety of having a state come in and, and create a hyper-safe zone, um, and they're using, like you said, science in a selective way to draw a kind of almost um, political lines right. to be followed or rules to be followed and it's like you said it's very arbitrary what you create what you have here is you have on the one hand a group of people who who have made choice and nihil their god right and the only thing they really have to hold on to is their existence at this point it's the only thing they really don't have choosing capacity over <laughs> isn't that rich and that becomes <laughs> something they they're in a crisis over and of course they don't turn to god in this case they turn to to the state or power right. to do it and i think it's very similar with with their fear because if you notice for people that have centralized choice there is this this extreme fear that they have. That's why this, this, this expansion of controls. And yeah, it's I'd like to think about that a little more after you're done here, but go ahead. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you, you have that. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm very clear on that, but what I'm trying to sh uh, talk about here is the way, sort of what Coulson was saying, is that the, the way in this, the celebration of individuality, of choices, and the nihil, 
you know, this, these, these pride parades and all this dancing in the street over nothing, just choices, right, people make. And, and these big, huge, almost religious festivals over nothing <laughs> at the end of the day that has no, you know, ultimate, ultimate or transcendent significance, much less even temporary significance in any meaningful way, okay. other than just it celebrates what people have chosen to do. Um, now, just as an observation... <laughs> What they're asking for is unlimited personal freedom, at least in the sexual arena, enforced by government uh, power. Yes. Right, right. So unlimited freedom enforced by government power. Yes. It, it, it's in, an intrinsic contradiction. Yeah, and that's I, you, you, you said in, in, with, with two lines what I was trying to say with 50. <laughs> but that's exactly right. I mean, it, that's you, why we love having Glenn with <laughs> that's us. That's right. <laughs> bring, can, bring, it to, bring it to a close. But no, that, that's, that's the big contradiction going on there. And, so, and then that is why there's this deep thirst for you know, the Supreme Court or, right. or having the top-down enforcement of that which will allow for this maximal expression of these kinds right. and areas. But they're not satisfied with just the celebration. They want you to celebrate. That's right. And they want your mandatory. children to celebrate. Mandatory fun. It's like what I told my kids. It's mandatory fun time. Yeah. And so there is this, this kind you of... You will have fun. That's right. That's right. <laughs> But there is this point at which they don't value the choice. They value their choice. That's it. And, and that, that's one of the, the other contradictions going on here. But um, I think we see, we can see at least kind of what... Let me, I just, before mm-hmm. you move on, yeah. let me just reflect a little bit on the cult of expertise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the, the cult of expertise plays into this very nicely. Because the, within the cult of expertise, you have a kind of uh, veil of moral uh, action, yeah. but it, it's veiled uh, through this sort of pseudo-scientific objective kind of projection. Hmm. This is, there's this idea that, okay, what, what's going on here is just the science. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we've all seen those, those, those signs on the, in front people, in the, on, in the lawns of, pe- of people, assuming they, they more or less beg the question, you know, who's on the side of science? Well, obviously, the Democrats are on the side of science, and anyone who's not a Democrat is against science. Well, when I, whenever I see that kind of thing, I can say, well, you know what, I can tell where you went to college, yeah. or what you didn't learn, or what you haven't read. You don't even have an understanding of a philosophy of science. That's right. You have no clue what science actually does, what its limitations are, what it's good for. Yeah, it's, a, it's more of a, it's another slogan. Right, to yeah. make you seem like you're part of the dark ages and they're part of the enlightenment, which is a strange thing because they hate science and they hate the enlightenment. So the same people that are out there putting it out there like you have somehow violated some sacred um, epistemological zone, um, all of a sudden are the very, I mean, they're the very ones to, to throw it off as soon as it becomes inconvenient. Yeah, talk right. to me right. about transgender stuff. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, yeah. that's it. So, but, but there's this veneer, there's this facade, there's yeah. this veil, mm-hmm. this projection of, of yeah. sort of rationality and scientific authority. Yeah. But that's what, it's not actually what they're after, is they're not after the science, they're after that's the authority. The authority, that's yeah, right. Now, if I may point out, we started off talking about how this kind of thing affects the church. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, as a, as a general note, the thing that causes corruption in the church is when it starts accommodating itself to the culture. Right. Yeah. It is always when the church starts adopting the values of the culture that yeah. it goes wrong. 
Okay, so let's just get that on the table right away. (laughs) But think about the cult of expertise and what that means in terms of who disciples our kids. It's going to be the youth pastor. Yeah, Yeah, right. You know, how do we do evangelism? We talk to people on, uh, into we talk people into coming to the church so that the pastor can win them because he's the professional. Right. <laughs> I wish they thought that way. <laughs> was it, was it, wasn't there wasn't there an article some years back? Called, he's the only he's the only authority that we don't really have a whole lot of respect for. But wasn't there something along this line called the demonization of the church? The demon, mm. the doctor of ministry. Yes. Oh right, right, yeah. right, right. Remember that? <laughs> And a pseudo doctor, but the, yeah, but it was that professionalization that gave it some sort of social credibility, right? Right. Um, and, and so, um, but 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 it, yeah, there was that that kind of, but that that I think is what uh, Coulson and and other people are kind of hinting at is the way that they've they've opened the door they open the door to this. Uh, Carl Henry actually has some old older essays. Um, reflects on that trend in which you know he's re- reflecting on places like Wheaton and other places that where you had sort of the old, uh, an older uh, tradition that the way he describes it didn't didn't have too much of an openness to the empirical as he put it or the experiential if you will and then the next generation was completely absorbing everything from the empirical sciences and everything else but what ends up happening is rather than than carrying um, a full theological analysis of these things. It went the other way. These, these empirical sciences started to be the higher authority over the theological, and the theology does the accommodating. Oh, I've seen that right up close. I, yeah. I've got uh, you know, an acquaintance who's very tied into the, the biologos uh, yeah. d- dynamic and, or what's going on with that, and you see that all over that. Yeah. You know? yeah. So um, I think um, some, some of these guys... Uh, you know, they, they've grown up, maybe they, they grew up in a very uh, anti-intellectual, fundamentalist, Baptist kind of environment. Yeah. But they're bright. Now, when you grow up in, a, in that kind of environment, you tend to be kind of a literalistic and, and, and voluntaristic without even knowing that you know, that's kind of your... Yeah. Your, yeah. Your, so you go from being kind of a, uh, an artless, fundamentalist kind of reader of Scripture to an artless, fundamentalist atheistic sort of scient- scientism. You run, a, you run to Dawkins very quickly. <laughs> That's right. You, 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 one, day one, you're, you're over here with the Schofield Reference Bible. Next day, you're over here with Dawkins. And it, I've seen it again and again and again. And what, what, what's going on with that is there's more in common between those two camps than either camp has yes. any ability to apprehend or understand. And, and I think what, what you already see there is because, because of that is because something Coulson is hinting at anyway. There is a sense in which those barbarians had gotten through to where even what looked like Christianity in a strong voice, <laughs> fundamentalism, was really, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of... It was uh, already halfway down. A lot of yeah. um, modernity already, already uh, articulating itself in it. Um, and, you know, again, I think this is something that happened in many cases under the surface to where a lot of people found out only as they were already participating in it, as, as most people are doing. It was a stew that was cooking, you know, it's like the frog in the kettle right, right. slowly turning up. And then by the time you realize that all of a sudden you're, a react- you're reactive because you, you weren't ahead of the game. I think that's why what we do is so important anyway, is it's trying to, to keep that ahead of the game. Uh, all right. the I'm, I'm fine. 
So we're going to do separate checks. So he and I will have our individual checks, and they're going to be together. Does that work yeah, okay? That's fine. All three together? Yep. 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 Mm -hmm. All right. So, so anyway, we'll... We've already interrupted you for enough uh, <laughs> times. Go, go back to uh, what you want to say, Tom. Well, um, go, going back, uh, it, the, uh, Alistair McIntyre in After Virtue said something very similar. He saw that, you know, that there is a new dark ages of moral decay already engulfing us. And he said, um, despite differences distinguishing the decline and fall of the Roman Empire from circumstances in our own day, there rose nonetheless a time in the context of the Roman Imperium when Christians began thinking of alternative types of community. Uh, McIntyre then urges us to consider new forms of society that by sustaining intellectual and moral life will actually preserve virtue into the future. Now we have, you know, we, uh, Dreher wrote a book, Benedict Option, that was following out McIntyre's call. Um, that's one example of it. And I, th I do think that book is actually worth engaging at some point, just because there are threads, I think, that are significant. And then you've mentioned before sometimes, Chris, and I, I think very similar, I think the, the Augustine may have a fuller way of doing it. I mean, if you think of the early church uh, reaction to a lot of these things, um, you had the first set of the ascetics that kind of went out into the desert, moved right, into, right. you know, they developed a lot of moral practices and, and virtue communities, but they didn't do the other task of actually trying to go bring all of that humanities into the light of Christ and, and further it as part of our deepest uh, communion with God and also our, our the light that the gospel has to bring to, to all of life. And I think Augustine was a figure that moved it in that direction. Um, but one of the things I want to note here is, is just with that question in mind, okay, what, with the church becoming part of this uh, nihilism, if you will, and, and I don't want to go into this now because we've done it in other shows, but it's not just the individualistic nihilism, but it's also the kind of woke social justice kind which tries to... Um, assert through their will a, a kind of moral, a moral vision that is, is anchored in the arbitrary and the nihil. They're stealing capital from other worldviews, but they can't generate it just right. the way they, they're trying yeah, to. Yeah, they have no, no substantive, uh, substantive vision. And they are after, creation, likewise, right. the tearing down, uh, terrorizing the, the props that have held up classical virtue, families, institutions, everything right, like that, right. in the church. There, you know, there's a book I'd like to engage in another show uh, that just came out, uh, Karl Marx in the church. Uh, it's his move into the Protestant churches. It's a new book that just came out, The, the Agenda. Remember, remember who uh, wrote it? Is it Kruger? I, I can find out, actually. Yeah, while, while you're thinking about that or looking into that, yeah, you know, one, of this thing, one of the things with, with Rod, it's in a way unfortunate that he called it the Benedict Option. I know he was trying to tie into you know, what, what McIntyre had said. But that set off uh, all sorts of alarm bells for people. And uh, the problem is, is that, you know, people kind of mentally shut down and didn't actually hear what Rob was saying. I know Rob. Right. <laughs> You're exactly right. <laughs> I know Rob. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, and so there's, there, there's a lot of, um, I don't know, straw man-ism with that. But, but what's interesting, you know, getting to this very thought, I was just, uh, mm. I found this. I was stumbling along. You know how you go, you're kind of like, Online, you're kind of you 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 go to a, a publication for one thing and then you see something else. Yeah. So I went to this. I went to the Critic, yeah. which is uh, in the UK. You know, it's a yeah. highbrow uh, sort of uh, arts and culture publication. It's mm. not Christian and by any stretch. Mm. But then, while I'm looking at an article there, um, I see a link to another article published by the Critic, 
entitled Building a New Jerusalem in Idaho. <laughs> yes, I saw that article. Yeah, and guess who they're talking about and what they're talking about. They're talking about Moscow and they're talking about New St. Andrews and they're talking about the people who live there. Yeah. And they're actually uh, very intrigued by it, what they observe. And they, they, they say, you know, what, what makes these folks tick is they're trying to build a new culture. Yeah. And that's, I think, uh, right on. And, and anyone who's tr- sort of trying to work with the dying culture is, yeah. is basically, uh, you know, the old you know, deck chairs on the Titanic illustration. That's, I, th- I really think that's what's going on. I think that yeah. all the woke stuff is deck chairs on the Titanic. I think all the yeah. you know, urban church planting Kellerism yeah. is yeah. deck chairs on the Titanic. Yeah, I think I th- all that stuff. That's what McIntyre I think, was I think saying Wheaton, as well. Yeah. I think Wheaton and yeah. the entire evangelical sort of uh, superstructure, you know, sort of the, the cool table of the evangelical world, it's deck chairs on the Titanic. It's going down. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, what uh, McIntyre calls, you know, it, when he's discussing that and he's talking about the Benedict option in his, his, his the last chapter of After Virtue, he's the one who kind of set it out there. He said it was the, the alternative to supporting the Roman Imperium because the elites had basically had, had run it, or, or were running it into a place of no return. And so this is where a sort of Christian preservation of the intellectual and virtue traditions of which they they um, were a significant part and 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 so the book title is The Devil and Karl Marx by Paul Kengor. It talks oh, yeah. especially oh, about the movie. Oh yeah, into, he's over at uh, he's at Grove City. Yes, and he he's he's yeah, my daughter's at Grove City. I'm going to have her take his class. Now, what I like the Benedict option. I think that there there are some really valuable things in there, but Rod's presentation is essentially defensive. Yeah. It's yeah. how do we protect the next generation? How do we protect our children yeah, from yeah. the depredations of the culture and all the things you've been talking about? Yeah. The thing that I think he gets exactly right is mm-hmm. that if you look at church history, up to and including the Reformation, every major reform movement in the church started in a monastery. Okay. And if you go since the Reformation, many of the major reform movements come up in some form of intentional community, like, say, Methodist societies or something like that. And the reason for this is what I said before, that the church goes bad when it adopts the values of the culture, When when it lets the culture set its priorities. But values are formed in community. Yes. So you need to have some form of intentional community in order to form the values in order to reform the church. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know that that has been the history of the church. So Rod is absolutely onto something, but what he is missing yeah. is what they've got in Moscow, the the more um Offensive as opposed to defensive. Right, right. Uh, well, and I have to specify defensive here because there's another possible meaning for offensive that, <laughs> that I don't want to imply. Well, this here. is right, very right, good. Right. This is a good move into my, the next thing I actually grabbed from, from David Bentley Hart's excellent article. But let, be, I mm-hmm. want to react to just what something, okay. something that, that, that uh, Glenn said before you do because mm-hmm. there's offensive and there's offensive. I think that I know what you're getting at, Glenn, but I think that the problem is is that we are so concerned about being offensive in the bad sense that we are not offensive in the good sense. Well, and the fact of the matter is I think a lot of people take offense at Doug Wilson and people like him wrongly. Yep, yep. You know, I mean, so... As far as I know, he's not had anybody put to death. 
Calvin did. <laughs> <laughs> well, you want a couple of names? I Calvin. I mean, that's. Thank you. But, but you get my point. You know, everything looks beautiful. 500 years ago, 400 yeah. years well, ago. Well, the thing you have to remember is that Calvin didn't succeed in putting everybody to death that he wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe and maybe he was justified, but that's another show. <laughs> but, 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 you, but you get my point, is that, is that we spend all day you know, you know, praising people who would have uh, been so offensive to us we would never want anything to do with them. If you ever read anything that Martin Luther actually said yeah. you know, or preached... The yeah. kinds of illustrations he used in a sermon from the pulpit would get 99% of pastors in America fired the next day. That, that's funny because Karl Barth used to hide his Luther <laughs> books like they were a, a naughty comic book or something. He would hide them. So he no. thought they were... But, uh, uh, and, and for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, I strongly encourage you to go online and do a search for the Lutheran insulter. <laughs> and, and these are actual quotes. These are actual quotes from Luther. Um, so, so with all this, this, this uh, great in line, um, this p- picks right back up to Dave Bentley Hart's uh, uh, switch, his contra, right? Um, for Christians... It isn't unpremised will, spontaneous, creating reality from our own choices that are only governed by our, our passions and interests. But it starts with the command, I am the Lord your God. This is the first reality to which our will is ordered. Re- read the rest of the commandments, right? You love the Lord, your, your, your heart set on the Lord first. You shall have no other gods before me, not even your choices. Um, For Israel, this was first and foremost a demand of fidelity by which God bound his people to himself. Um, To Christians, um, the commandment came through an indissoluble bound to Christ. It was not simply a prohibition of foreign cults, but an assault on the antique order of the heavens and a declaration of war upon the gods. So to, and he goes on, all the world was to be evangelized and baptized. This is part of the commission. All idols overturned. This went with it. You know, let, let me just stop here a second. I had yeah. a conversation with a young man in my church, and I've been, I had been preaching my way through Acts, and he said to me he had been taking some kind of online Bible study course or something like that for college credit. Mm-hmm. And he said, your reading of the, of, of the book of Acts is so much more political than the, th- the thing that I'm being told in my class. Yeah. You actually say that Christ is Lord, and that's the thing that got Christians in trouble. That's not what I'm being told in my online Acts Bible class <laughs> sponsored by XYZ, you know, I don't know. Um, you, get my, you get my drift. Yeah. The confession Jesus is Lord is inescapably political. Yes, that's right. Theology that's, is inescapably political. Well, and, th- and that's, I think, uh, uh, the, the, the point of the first commandment. Is, is extreme. Your ultimate loyalty in the competitor in the world to, to God is, is worldly power, right? But you see, the thing is, is most Christians today think that that's just something that goes on inside their heads. That's right. And this is why I think David Bentley Hart is talking about the, the, the fight with nihilism is, is that we can't sit passively by. We have to do what Wilson does and go after the idols. And all worship turned towards the one God who, in these latter days, has sent his son into the world for our salvation. Um, it's going to be a bloody battle. Martyr's blood was first. And, um, 
And, uh, but he, he talks about the way in which Zeus's temples, as a result, have actually been nearly um, vacated. Um, um, Christ the Conqueror, Pentecrator. Yep. I now I have a T-shirt with that. I have to wear it. Well, one we got we got to get we yeah. got to get we got to get some T-shirts for the podcast with that. We we have to. But <laughs> but this is about the, that central metaphor yeah. of I think what Wilson is is exhibiting. But this is this. Well, was, did, did you hear about his the Boniface option? <laughs> oh man! Oh boy, would that get us in trouble? Yeah, we 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 basically burn things down. We we chop things up. But yeah, for talking. those of you who don't know, Boniface was famous for chopping down the sacred oak tree to Thor. <laughs> that's what we do. That's what we do, baby. Well, yeah. in, now that's if, evangelism. Yeah. Now, if, <laughs> if, actually, there, there's a story I could tell about that one, but we'll skip that for the moment. Um, the interesting thing about this is that when you understand this, when you understand the concept of Christ's lordship and everything that it means, among other things, what it tells you is that all of the things that are going on in the world around us that tend to get our knickers in a twist aren't important because they are all going to be taken care of in the end. That doesn't excuse us from doing our job and trying to promote the good, the true, and the beautiful and Christ's lordship and things like that. But it means we can relax. Yeah. That's we, right. We don't really need to worry about it. We can't. We have. We have to fight. Yeah. But there's nothing wrong with laughing and feasting too. That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, and you and you 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 uh, have been quoted a few times. I don't know if you realize this about your your characterization of the of the singing at the fight laugh feast conference. What was it again? The term you used. Mil- it wasn't just the singing. It was the entire atmosphere, militantly joyous. That's what. That's what we're getting at here. We mm-hmm. we can fight. But the reason we're joyous is we know we win. Right. Yeah. You know, there's, there's no doubt that we yeah. win. Yeah. That's right. And there, there is a something, uh, um, they used to always, uh, even Karl Barth in the face when he was at risk with preaching the gospel during the time of Nazism and stuff, they always said when he was confronted with the question of evil, he just shrugged his shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. that was, he, he, you know, at a time where everyone else was bent out of shape of the extremities, it was, he, he was that same kind of confident joy. That's why, like, Mozart is someone, too, who, even in the melancholy and the tragedy, could still play like he's just Well, that's, that's one surfing. of the things that I, I, that I, that I limed uh, and brought, you know, sort of saw, sort of beneath the surface, bubbling up in Bombadil. You know, here's a guy who's the master, and he lives... You know, in a really bad neighborhood, <laughs> right between the old forest and the Barrow Down. So he's like right between the perilous land and a graveyard, hmm. haunted well, and, graveyard, and, and, and worse, yeah, haunted graveyard. He, he is literally on the edge between a very dangerous kind of life and living stuff and a very, very dangerous kind of dead and undead. That's right. And, and throughout the Lord of the Rings, and this is one of the things that uh, struck me, is that Tom makes an appearance in terms of you know, a reference at very critical moments. So, so like when, when Sam is in, and Frodo are in Shelob's lair, what does Sam say? I wish Tom were here right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, and there are, it, happen, it happens several times throughout the course of the story. So this is not like a character that's just some sort of off, you know, sort of, sort of distraction or, or, or detour or, you know, just something to add a little color or, or mm-hmm. diversion. 
he's, he's integral to the whole story. But I'm, and and I'm, actually, that quote that you posted on Facebook where right. Tolkien is saying, you know, I knew about Tom Bombadil, but... You know, I didn't know about Bree. I didn't know about Strider. I had no idea who he was when he appeared. Okay. You know, all of these different things. He knew about Tom. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, he already had talked about Tom and yeah. written about Tom. <laughs> knew him well. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> right. Anyway, so I'm sorry to take you. Oh, no, down, no down worries. Road. Uh, um, so, so I think one of the things that, that uh, questions I'm saying is, I understand what Rod's up to. I understand what McIntyre's saying, and I understand the necessity of this. That the, the those of us concerned with a full vision of the gospel, that it that it entails um, the preservation of creaturely goods that are in the service of the gospel, the, the whole of creation, if you will. Um, that we we bear a a responsibility because of redemption for the preservation of these things. Um, but one of the things I think in, in, in stepping out, what do those, what kind social forms will they take, and and what kind of common life as Christians will will we share? One of the things I think that has to be integral is this this aspect of what you just mentioned, the that we're in spiritual war. And I think this is what, the reason I mentioned uh, Bentley. He said when a Gentile convert stood in the baptism at Easter Eve before. Um, entering the waters, they turn to the West and they denounce the devil and the devil's ministry. Isn't and, that interesting? When was the last time you've heard that done at a baptism? That's right. And then it was, it's in saying so they're re rejecting and in fact reviling the gods who had held them in bondage in this life. And in turn to the East to confess Christ, they're entrusting themselves to the invincible hero who has plundered hell and its captives, overthrown death, subdued the powers of the air, and has been raised as the Lord of history. Life for the early church was spiritual warfare, and no Christian could doubt how great a transformation of the self and world it was to consent to serve the God who was revealed in Christ and no other. So here's the last point. The situation of the church has materially changed, but spiritual warfare is something intrinsic to the gospel. That's, that's it. You know, I, I know a lot of well-meaning people who think that it's, a, it's sort of an extra thing. Mm -hmm. It's a sort of unnecessary sort of, oh, if you're into that kind of thing, then you can go and do that. But the gospel is not really about that kind of stuff. But what you just said is that, no, it is. This yeah. is about this real estate that we're, we're, we're living in right now we're fighting over. This is gospel ministry. And when you had mentioned uh, previous episodes and you did some sermons on it that talk about how radical the resurrection is and how everything is banked on it, but it's because it has plundered hell. Right. right. It, has, it has overcome death, and then it does give us, and this is why the, the feasting and the laughing can happen, we are working out of resources of victory already and so the question now is this is this is Christ's territory and we're making claim to it and so there is and this is what I'm saying when we when we move to having to preserve certain things we cannot lose it's not merely about saving the phenomena it's about bringing that stuff back into its proper relation to a polemical spiritual battle that both the humanities, if you will, and and all the institutions that have in, been impacted by false gods are brought back into and battled back into um, a full picture of the gospel. Now, now to take that, um, 
I'm all set. I think I think we're actually pretty good here. I think uh, we yeah. had told the waitress who was with us before that uh, we were, you know, divide, ready to divide up the check. Great. Thanks, Ethan. Yeah. So anyway, you know, well, I've got a pre- okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, I what, 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 where I was going to go is, you know, it's interesting when, you know, tying this with spiritual warfare and the other things we've talked about. In the Gospel of Luke, in the account of Jesus' temptation, Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory and says, all this I will give to you, for it is mine to give. Right, yeah, right, yeah. Right. If you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus, of course, tells him where to stick it. But, <laughs> but the point here is that Jesus didn't dispute the fact that the kingdoms of the world and their glory are, are in Satan's hands. Right, right. What Satan was offering Jesus, and this is the same thing when Peter says, you know, rebukes Jesus and says, no, this isn't going to happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. In both cases, what was going on is Jesus was being presented with the option of a shortcut. Right. Yeah. He's going to get all the kingdoms of the world in all their glory, but he's going to do it God's way rather than taking the shortcut that Satan or Peter has to offer. Yeah. And that yeah. raises a very awkward question in the, my mind. And <laughs> that's exactly where I think I'm going. The yeah. problem is that the church is busy looking for the kingdoms of the world with a shortcut. That's it. That's yeah. it. So I have a suggestion for the title for the episode. I don't know if you already had one. No, I don't have a title. The Boniface Option, in <laughs> honor of our friend, <laughs> Doug Wilson. Send it, send but, 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 send it to Caleb. Yeah, that's, <laughs> no, it's good. Yeah, I like but, that. Yeah. But, I, but I think, uh, you know, getting to this point, you know, in, in the sense that, okay, here we have this battle going on. You know, we've been kind of dipping in a little bit to, to, to the, you know, the story of Middle Earth and all that kind of thing. One of the things that I, that I wrestle with is the question of how many combatants do we have? In other words, are there, are there people who are on the right side but are not combatants? Not, I, I'm not saying they don't, they're not supportive or anything like that, but I think about examples in Scripture. Think about Gideon. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, send a bunch of people home. Okay, send even more home. <laughs> that kind of thing, you know. Yeah. And I think about, like, like the, you know, getting back to the Lord of the Rings and uh, the Middle Earth, the Shire. The Shire, uh, yes, it does suffer uh, before the end of the story, but um, for the longest time, there are people who are protecting the Shire so it can enjoy its Shireness. Yeah. Rangers, and then we have Frodo and, of course, his companions who go off. Why, why do they go off? To protect the Shire. Yeah. So there's a sense in which this is my... This, I'm, not saying this is, I'm not saying this is what the Bible says. This is just kind of my sort of way of dealing with a kind of reality on the ground. I have a lot of people that I love and care about who are completely oblivious. <laughs> I mean, utterly oblivious to what we've just been talking about. Yeah. They're hobbits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They really are. They're yeah. good people. Hmm. I like them. I, I want them to enjoy their gardens. I want them to enjoy <laughs> their, their lives. But I really don't expect much and when it comes to the fight from them. yeah. On the other can, hand... Can it, Chris, Chris, before we go any further, I just want to point something out. Sure. When the hobbits are going back, I believe it is Gandalf who says something to them to the effect of, you know, very bad paraphrase here, but all the things that have happened... Together, right? together, right? together. Great, thank you. All the things that have happened happen to prepare the hobbits to go back. So, in other words, it isn't just all the big stuff in Middle-earth that matters. 
Right. They were, the, the, the destruction of the ring was as much about preparing the hobbits for the scouring of the Shire than it was defending all of Middle-earth. And, and isn't it kind of interesting that it's already after the big battle's over that they finally get a chance to play their part, mm-hmm. sort of the right. mop-up operation. <laughs> yeah. I guess I, the reason I think about this is that as a pastor, I have to be, I think, in a sense, realistic about what I should expect. Now, well, I, I'm hopeful... Yeah, I but, mean, I, I do think there, I mean, it's like, I think, I think maybe one of the things, and this is the point, you know, com, when I'm talking about common life, you know, I'm talking in terms of, of our connection to, um, thank you, even as, in, in the, even in the Reform Confession, as our commitment to one Catholic church, small c, <laughs> right, right. Um, is, is this notion that part of the history of understanding what baptism was all about is that, that everyone who is affirming Christ's lordship is entering a spiritual battle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I do think we... C- but most of them are thinking in terms of their personal salvation. Well, that, well the, and this is where I think Colson is saying that something dark has entered, and I think uh, McIntyre, too, has entered our churches. Right. Um, it came under a kind of piety of, okay, you have a certain kind of communing life with God, which, is, which, which there's space for that. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. And uh, there, there's space for that. Um, but I think what happens is it, it becomes everything. Well, that's it. They, yeah. they have zero uh, capacity for, for appreciating the larger story. Yeah. Um, and even when I uh, you know, point again and again, I've done this for years. Yeah. There's a kind of, I don't know, kind of uh, blank stare. Yeah. What are you talking about? I thought that was, this was about my personal salvation. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't know that that everything in the world was thrown in when Christ died. Yeah. I mean, you know, and we have, it's not just one stray verse here and there. Uh, even Everybody's the, I, favorite verse, John three sixteen. Right, yeah. right. God so loved the cosmos. Right. Is the word in Greek. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. right. But most of them, when they hear that, yeah. they're thinking individuals, an aggregate yeah. of individuals. God so loved all these yeah. individuals. They don't think about the order, which is what cosmos is getting at. The, the God established order that God yeah. is redeeming. Yeah. Well, and this has been this has been you know sadly this is part of what has has weakened the church as a virtue institution and a, as a, a community that cultivates the kind of virtues that sustain a people through these kinds of moments. You know. And and I think that that's sort of what Colson and and, uh, and and McIntyre are onto, um, and so yeah, that that's its own set of issues, you know. Um, I mean, there, there's the set the pastoral concerns of how how do you bring people into a full theological vision of Christianity. Um, and I know people, you know, I know people like the simple solution. Well, scripture, scripture. Well, this is the problem. They're reading scripture from a non-scriptural frame, but that scriptural frame, <laughs> that scriptural frame is what is what we're talking about. The the theological. When I say theological vision, I'm talking about the frame that theology gives us of reality. That is the one yeah, in but, which but, we read the scriptures. But most of the people that yeah. read, come yeah. to the Bible have no idea that they're pro- approaching it from the frame exactly. of radical individualism. That's right. and that's, They that's, assume that that's just sort of like yeah. the nature of things. And so that has so softened the ground, and like this is where Coulson wasn't 
yet because it hadn't hit, but this is so soft in the ground that it created the set of conditions that allows now the new wokeness and the, the rest to come in because it adopts a lot of that vision, but it's also a critique of that vision. And then the church gets brought in to be critiqued because it seems to be supporting that vision that is being rejected by the woke group. And this is what I'm saying about what you're seeing is not just the church and the gospel being impacted and, and then the, the, the church is dividing, um, but what you're doing is you're, you're, you're also risking losing in churches um, the capacity to be able to be places of, of, of genuine intellectual and uh, virtue formation in, in, in the gospel. Yeah. Be- yeah. yeah, yeah, they're substituting this uh, this woke stuff. They yeah. th- they think that's serious business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, we should probably kind of wrap up. And I want to move from the sublime to the ridiculous. Why is it, Lynn? So Glenn's <laughs> wife, Lynn, is with us. That waitresses have these funky color pens. So why is it that I, I when she gives me her pen, it's this lime green thing, or so it's that this you don't walk out with that? Walk out with you. <laughs> See, you, I have to break out my black. You would take this one. You would take pen. that. <laughs> but what is going on with that? Yeah, I, I, I like I use it. I say, no, I'm not going to use that. To yeah, you sign would, my name. you would walk with that. Because, yeah, this one you'll you'll at least question. Yeah, that's why you have the little f- the. Fl- yeah, it's 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 li- it's lime green. It's lime green. Anyway. Uh, uh, is it, there's Lynn a metaphor is, there. Lynn, Lynn is testing to see if I'm actually telling the there's truth. There's a metaphor there, but it's, it's not that the gospel should be wrapped in lime green so that people know how to distinguish it from everything else. <laughs> well, with that thought, we should probably say goodbye because we have gone uh, our, our standard hour plus. And it's been a fun conversation, and we really yeah. do appreciate you listening to the Theology Podcast. By the way, we want you to know how things are progressing in certain things, in certain areas that that some, some of our listeners have uh, given some good hard-earned money to, to support. We're in, the, we're in the process of getting our new website off the ground. So anyway, uh, those of you who have given to the, you know, the, the Indiegogo campaign, uh, you've received hopefully your T-shirt or your glass or both. Uh, but uh, we've got our mics, as you know, and we're at work getting the, the website developed. And it's going to be really good. But... It's not up yet, but we want you to know it, it is in the works, and it's, it's soon to be uh, available to you, because we know that people look for resources. They look for, you know, stuff to, uh, to link, you know, or, to, or links to, to, to things that are referenced in our, in our uh, discussions. You know, I, I just saw this this last week. People were wanting to know about some of the things that Zmirak, you know, yeah, I talked about yeah. last week. And, uh, you know, if we were to, list, to link everything that Zmirak said, it would be like pages and pages <laughs> of a hyperlink, you know. But anyway, uh, but we, we, we want to do better with that. But uh, it's in the works. We wanted you to know that. So anyway, anything you, you want to say, Glenn, as we wrap up? Yes, well, as long as you brought up the fact that Lynn is here, I want to just acknowledge her restraint at not calling on you to finish the other trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. I heard, I heard about the conversation she had at the, F- the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network with people at the, at the booth. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, that's something I need to work on. 
<laughs> Anything else you want to say? <laughs> no. No, I can't beat that. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. We really appreciate your interest and support. As we've said many times, we're astounded at the size of the audience, and we just appreciate that people care about what we care about. So thanks a lot, and bye-bye. Bye now. Bye.